Hi, connectors. Welcome back, loyal connectors, and welcome new connectors to the new name alert. First episode of Connected to the podcast. I am the host, Alexia Marche Plummer, and the owner, creator, and curator of Amps Connected. It's been a year since we last connected. A lot has happened. I finally passed the New York bar. Nevertheless, she persisted. So now what? Artists, let's connect. Let's talk about you. Let's talk about your artistry and legal issues that affected you, your artistry, or your local community. Legal issues will be talked about. I am not yet licensed to practice. I am not establishing an attorney-client relationship. I am not establishing an attorney-client relationship. Now, sit back, relax, do what you do, whatever you do while listening to a podcast, and let's get connected. I am so excited to be here today in his office, in his conference room, New York-born, Indiana-bred, right? Absolutely. Attorney by day and a courageous military man by might. Thank you for your service. Thank you. Connectors, welcome, Mr. Greg Theobald. Thank you for having me here. Thank you for inviting me, Lexi. I appreciate it. Thank you. And I'm excited because this is rebranding, a relaunch of Connected the Podcast. And now I'm ready to get into the nitty gritty and introduce connectors to the world of law and Excellent. justice. So Excellent. I think you are the perfect person to help me with that. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thank you. So before we get started with the nitty gritty, yep. um, should we tell the connectors that you are not offering any type of... Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, not going to give any legal advice. And uh, yeah, don't call in, please, because yeah. we can't answer those questions. So no attorney-client privilege is being formed right now? Absolutely. No. If we tell war stories, it'll be... Uh, well, yeah, we'll, we'll keep the names out of it for sure. All right. So take us all the way back. You're from... You were born in New York. Was born in Rockville Center uh, on Long Island. Yeah. All right. Um, lived there until uh, was, let me think, Lex, probably three or four. So I don't have great, mem- you know, huge memories of New York. Mm-hmm. Then my dad was a professor at Brooklyn College. Okay. Then he got transferred to or took a, took a job in um, Kitchener, Waterloo, Ontario in Canada. Oh, cool. And my mom was a professor there. Mm-hmm. So he was at University of Waterloo. I think she was at Wolford Laurier. Was the, was the university there. So he was teaching recreation. I think she taught art history or communication. Okay. And then my dad took a job at Purdue when I was in third grade. So when I was about nine or ten, we moved to Indiana. All right. Um, went to West Lafayette High School, um, then went to Wabash College, and then uh, was in the Army for, for a few years. Um, went to law school, as you did, up at yeah, Cooley. And uh, there you go. Shout out. Yeah. Okay. So you kind of took us on... Uh, Speedy journey of your life. So I'm going to slow it down a little bit. Okay. Uh, take us back to Indiana. So you were born in New York, then your parents drug you all the way here to the cornfields uh-huh. of Indiana. Yes. What was life like? When, when I first got to Indiana? Yeah. Um, Any of your early memories of growing up here? Yeah, sure. So we lived on uh, 225 West, which was out in, in rural Tippecanoe County. With the cornfields? 
We had, I think we were on six acres of land. There, there were definitely cornfields around, but we didn't have corn. Yeah, you know what we did? Because in the lot next to us, there was a couple of acres that my parents wound up cash renting. And I never understood what that meant until I got a lot older. Please explain if, if you want. Sure. Cash rent as a farmer comes along and says, hey, Lexi, you've got five acres, ten acres of land. How about if I plant the crops, I harvest the crops, and then when I make whatever profit I make from the crops, we share in those profits. So in other words, I give you money for renting the land. Okay. So it's either a 50-50 or a 75-25 arrangement. So my parents cash rented a little bit, and, and we had uh, a really big front yard. I think when I was in probably, um, I laugh at some of these family law cases I have now because I'm, when I was probably in fourth or fifth grade, mm -hmm. I'm on a riding mower no. uh, by myself, <laughs> no. uh, mowing a couple acres of land. Um, neighbors, I remember, had a basketball hoop and because both of my parents worked. I can remember coming home and going across the street and playing basketball. Um, kind of did a lot of things. I have a younger sister, um, so, you know, she and I would play, but certainly also remember doing a lot of things like they had a, a brick chimney. And I remember sometimes for, for hours, it seemed like I would throw a tennis ball against the, the chimney and catch Aww. it. Um, just good, good rural memories. The neighbors had a big trampoline. Um, you stop me whenever you no, want. No, no. Some of these memories are funny. I remember uh, we, there were three three people or the people lived across the street. Won't tell you who they were. Um, two of those kids, unfortunately, are now deceased. There were three kids, and the oldest um, introduced me to choba chewing tobacco probably uh -oh. when I was about ten. Uh oh. Um, I remember Beach Nut, Levi Garrett. Um, I mean, it was just it was funny. It was it was kind of a rural place, um, bust into school, uh, played youth basketball, and uh, yeah, I mean, had no complaints about my childhood whatsoever. So, mm. so no concrete jungle, just, I guess, cornfield jungle and tennis right. hoops. Or yeah, tennis, tennis courts. I mean, <laughs> it, courts. we played certainly a lot of kickball at mm -hmm. Klondike. I remember that vividly. I also vividly remember playing football at recess. Uh, you know, really two-hand touch, not tackle. Yeah. I was never allowed to play football because my dad told me that he broke his back in the Marines playing football. Okay. And I was always a okay. skinny little dude, so they never wanted me to play, and I always wanted to play. So if I have a, a, a regret in life, it's not playing football. Um, but uh, I mean, it's not too late. I'm 47. It may be, well, I tackle football. Wouldn't be able tackle to tell. Football. Okay, yeah. all right, fair yeah. enough. So... You said that your parents are in academics. Correct. And your mom is an art teacher. She Okay, so she was an art teacher. She, um, she has a master's degree. She, I think she has many credits towards her Ph.D. She is a, she's got something called AAI. I think it's Appraisal Associates International. She appraises essentially fine art. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and goes to Christie's and Sotheby's and what? represents clients. That's and, awesome. Yeah, I mean, I remember growing up, there was a, there's a picture of her and Moreau, right, uh, over in France. And my parents amazing. owned an art gallery at one point in Maine because we used to spend our summers in Maine. So uh -huh. my parents owned a, the Bridgeton Art Gallery. Um, wow. Yeah. So did this have any influence on you to study the arts, like either 
art history, as in paintings, or did you dabble in music? Or? I, I would say probably it did the opposite. It, it made me, to some extent, rebel against it. Oh uh, if my, my mom goodness. and dad ever laugh, I love listen to this, I love you. Um, hopefully they can <laughs> laugh at this a little bit. But I can remember um, they got tickets to all the convocations at Purdue. Mm-hmm. So we'd have to go to all the plays, my sister and I. We'd have to go to all the musicals. I, I couldn't stand it. You're rolling your eyes. Oh, yeah, and I couldn't, like, couldn't oh, stand it. <laughs> well, when you're made to go yeah. and you're not given a choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember being made to play an instrument. Um, How would you play? Played the French horn for a while. Okay. Um, they, they, you're gonna, this, will, this will make you laugh. We were made to take piano lessons forever and ever. And my mom always said, you got to practice for 30 minutes at the end of the day. We never practiced. One time, we'd have a recital at the end of the year, and it would take us all year to learn one piece. Um, so uh, I, I think my, my way of kind of being forced into that was to try to uh, maybe do the opposite, if, if you will, a little bit. Um, certainly, I mean, I know art. Uh, certainly appreciate it. My mom would always say, Greg, you have a great eye for art, and I probably do, but I think w- when that is, to some extent, force, forced uh, a, a little bit, and that's okay, yeah. you, you tend to try to maybe uh, make your own uh, right. choices a little bit, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. So. So, so you like art, you appreciate art, yes, but you hate it all at the same time. Yeah, I, I, I don't hate art. They're, okay. they're, no, I, I don't want right. to say I hate art. It's just, it, you know, some people go to Chicago and say, geez, I really want to go to the Art Institute. Yeah. Uh, I they, certainly would go, but wouldn't be, I would prefer, much prefer to go to the Science and Industry Museum mm-hmm. than, than to do that. Um, I was in Paris a couple years ago. We took a little quick family trip in the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, we were, and it was so funny because the travel agent that helped me book the trip said, Greg, when you get to Paris, you're going to be absolutely exhausted. Whatever you do, don't take the train. Uh-oh. Pay double, take a cab to your hotel. So what do you think I did? Took the train. You got it. Uh-oh. <laughs> got, got completely lost uh, when we got off of the, of the, I want to call it the Bonhof, that's Germany, but, but we got off the metro, went in circles, probably took me an hour and a half for, for, for us, the tube. To try to find the hotel, we finally found it, and so my son, I said, uh, "Hey," and my wife, I say, "Hey, let, let's let's go to." We were in Paris, but I want to go see the D'Orsay. Right there, there's one painting I like in there, "Liberty Leading the People." Right, Delacroix. I said, "Let's go see it." That actually, that's in the Louvre, but I want to go to the D'Orsay just to see some of the impressionists. And my son is so tired, he's pulling me by the shirt going, Dad, I just want to go. So, so I probably got a good 20 minutes in there. But wow. uh, so no, I don't hate art. It, it's just not probably nearly as important in my life as it was in my parents' life. I see. And, and is in their lives, too. So. I understand. So what did you study in undergrad? Good question. So I was a, I was a history major. Um, was always kind of drawn to World War II. Always, okay. yeah, always fascinated with with World War II. Um, for a minor, I really didn't have a minor, mm-hmm. uh, except that you can't graduate unless you declare a minor. So I wound up having a minor in art history, which simply meant that you took a couple classes in it. I remember we had a visiting professor from Howard University, and I wish I could remember his name. He's a great guy. Um, he did African art, it was a neat class, and uh, mm-hmm. so. But 
to call myself a serious student in undergrad would, would be stretching things about as far as you possibly could. Right. So I mean, I loved my school, but yeah. And you I, went to where for undergrad? Loyola University, New Orleans. Okay. There you go. Love it. <laughs> so... Okay, so you're an art history no, minor, sorry. history major, history major yeah. art minor, art history minor, art history yeah. minor, and now you are an attorney during business hours. Yes, during business hours. So, how did you go from history to law to law, and somewhere in between, you joined the military? Sure, so <laughs> help me understand your life and your life story okay um, um, this is great I'm glad you're interested I can't believe anybody would be interested in this but yeah, but I'm, th- I'm thrilled so um, in I, I picked my college based upon where I could play tennis so when I was senior in high school my goal in life was to be a pro tennis player I enjoyed hanging out with my friends um, enjoyed having a couple of beers on the weekend, even though we're under 21, right? But, but you know, we're, we're a pretty normal, normal group of guys. Um, I had a chance my senior year, second semester of high school, to go to a tennis academy, Rick Day's Tennis Academy in Florida. Okay. Um, backing up a little bit, there were three guys before me at my high school. Uh, the oldest guy went to University of Illinois and played. He was a phenomenal player. Then the guy behind him went to Purdue and played. And then the guy in front of me went to LSU. Hey, and go Tigers. Played, I remember he played number eight as a freshman when they were number one in the country. He was, he was a Prince High School All-American. He was a phenomenal tennis player, way better than I ever was. But he used to go to Indianapolis to train in North Central. So my parents talked to his folks. And so then I went down to North Central the summer between my junior and senior year of high school and I'd, you know, I'd get up at 5, five not 5 o'clock, but 5.30 in the morning, mm-hmm. drive down there, get there at 7, play all morning, eat lunch, play in the afternoon, get home at 5, and drive to tournaments on the weekends. Um, you know, I, by myself, my parents are, are obviously financially supporting that. But I just decided, hey, I'd love to see if I could do this. So when the chance came for me to go to this tennis academy second semester of my senior year, my parents said, no, absolutely not, because it was, a, it was too expensive. So um, I looked at Butler, and I looked at Wabash, I looked at Purdue, but the only two schools that, that really I had a chance to go play tennis at, certainly not Purdue so it wasn't that caliber, mm-hmm. was Butler. And I remember the coach, uh, I, I think that was a one-third scholarship offer I got. Mm-hmm. And then I looked at Wabash, and I remember the tennis coach came to see me play a high school match against Crawfordsville, and I walked off the court, and you're in high school, you're a wide-eyed kid, and I said, uh, you know, geez, thanks for coming to see me. Do you think I could come to Wabash and play? He said, yeah, you could play right now. Mm-hmm. So um, then I went and looked at the campus and, and had a heck of a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. I'll let your listeners read between <laughs> the lines on what that means um, and just decided to go there. So now I'm losing track of, I apologize. Oh, how I got from. Yeah, yeah, it's all right. So, uh, so then I go to college and, and, and kind of started to get a little burnout on tennis because, you know, it's, it's a real repetitive thing over and over and over and over and over. Um, graduated from college, a little broken and lost, as some people probably are. And you think, you know, geez, I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, applied to law schools, got into one law school. This was back in 1992. Right. And it was Thomas Cooley, where you and I are. Yeah. 
Oh, shout love, out. Yes. Yeah. Love that place. Um, and then, it, but I was in on a two-year wait. Okay. So I told my dad, I said, hey, um, I'm into Cooley on a two-year wait. And I said, I, I think I'm going to go down to Hilton Head and get certified to teach tennis, but I need X number of dollars to make that happen. And he looked at me. And again, I mean, you talk, talk about wisdom. It's funny. He said, uh, um, "I'm not going to pay for you." Essentially, I won't use his exact quote to hook up with married women. Mm-hmm. And I and I laughed. And he said, because uh, he was in the, he was enlisted in the Marines back in the in the early '50s. So he said, "Why don't you go talk to a recruiter about the Army?" And I, of course, I laughed and told him, "Essentially, I'm not going to do it." Mm-hmm. I went down and talked to a recruiter, and the guy said to me, "What do you want to do?" I don't know. And he said, uh, you want to jump out of airplanes? I said, yeah, that sounds great. He said, great, you want to be in the infantry. And I knew when I went down there, my dad said, whatever you do, this will be a theme for your listeners, don't be a cook and don't join the infantry. Hmm. So what do you think I did? You did both? Join the infantry. Signed up, wow. uh, active duty, two years, 16 weeks. Um, got sent to Fort Benning, Georgia for basic training. Left in August. So I graduated college. May of 92, um, went out to Baltimore. My uncle owns a bar and I have another uncle that, that is kind of a political guy and just kind of, you know, dinked around a little bit. Came back, took a couple grad school classes at Purdue in history. Really didn't like it. Uh, really was just, I, I was not an academic per se. And that was clearly if you're going to grad school in history, you're going to wind up, you know, it, it just wasn't my cup of tea. And um, so I left for the Army in August of 93. Um, got sent to Germany for two years in November of 93, um, was stationed in a town called Vilsack, Germany. Are you not scared during all of this? Like when uh, you decided to sign up, knowing that you're going to be like on the front lines, what's going through your head? The, uh, there's probably, I mean, we never, okay, so I never saw any combat. Okay. The the only time that I probably would say that that I was scared and probably everybody in basic training was scared is at Fort Benning, where I did my basic training down in Georgia. They've got an old German city. It's a World War II recreation with buildings and it's got a sewer. Of course, the sewer's not there. There's no plumbing, so it's not on. And they took us out there for for what they call mount training, which is kind of urban urban warfare training. They took us out there once. Then they took us out there again, and Captain Panzeri, I'll never forget, he says, well, you know, do you guys know why you're here a second time? And you're in basic training, you're not going to say anything to the captain of the CO. And so he said, when you graduate from basic training, every one of you is going to Somalia. Mm. And so that was the time when they were dragging the Rangers' heads through the streets of Somalia. So, so my thought was, I remember oh. sitting there in Fort Benning going, great, I'm going to wind up, you know, dying in Somalia. Yeah. It's probably, it was probably a combination of being scared and also being resigned mm-hmm. be, because you know once you're in there, uh, once you're in, I mean, that, that's it, right? I mean, you can't run home to mom and cry, and I mean, that's, that's it. Now, as it turns out, I got sent to Germany and um, never had to go to Somalia, so it all worked oh, out. But, uh, yeah. Wow. So. Again, thank you for your service, even in Germany, in the comfort of the Germans. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. But... I I was interested in becoming a JAG officer. Oh, were you really? Yeah, but when I realized, like, 
one, I don't have to do basic training, <laughs> and the potential of going somewhere yeah. not so safe, I'm really hesitant. So, yeah. I, I applied for, I, I thought about applying to OCS, Officer Candidate School. I'm glad I did because I enlisted because I got a two-year, 16-week contract. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, I, I enlisted after college. People look at me funny. You did what? But, yeah, sure. And I, had, I thought about OCS, decided not to do it. Um, which was great because I knew that I was going to law school. So that's interesting that you were also thinking about it. So, yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, so thank you again. Do you have any military in your family? Any other? Oh, your father is My military. dad was in, in, um, in the Marines. His brother was in the Marines for a couple of years. But no, not really. I, 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 as a, as a, a son, and now I have my own son, mm-hmm. I think I, I look at it differently now than I did then. When I look at it now, I think my dad probably saw a kid who was drifting a little bit and didn't have great direction. Mm-hmm. Um, and having been in the military himself, probably felt like that was a, a good thing to keep somebody, f- get you focused. Yeah. And, um, you know, transitioning out of law school, I got out of the military in November of 95, active duty. Okay. Started Cooley Law School January 1 or 2 of 96. Wow. So that was a time that I was scared in law school. <laughs> but the discipline that, that I learned, I think, in the military was really, really important for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think was a huge part of my ability to be successful in law school. Wow, so, I can see that. Yeah. Instead of your CEO or whomever yelling at you, you have professors or an exam yelling at you saying you're stupid as you know <laughs> in, in law school there's just one exam at the uh, end of the semester and that, and that is tremendous pressure yeah. and, and I studied I mean I would I'm not, your, your listeners might think I'm lying but I every day I did my, my reading every single day we had classes I had classes I got lucky in the afternoon yes. so I would go to class what one to four mm-hmm. would study at night seven to ten get up in the morning, finish up anything I need to, and, and you know, we had fun. I mean, cool, it was a great experience, yeah. but, but I think that military discipline was exactly what I needed. And sure. I mean, I, we can talk more about this later, but I taught a class at Purdue for three semesters. Okay. Um, it was called HTM 411, Hospitality and Tourism Law. Huh. It's probably been about 10 years ago, nah, eight years ago. I loved it. That's interesting. Um, Tell me a little bit about that class. Sure, it, it's uh, it's in it's hospitality and tourism law class. So you talk about the law of hotels, restaurants, so food safety, slip and falls in restaurants and, and hotels, those kinds of things. And there's a textbook. Um, they wanted an adjunct person, so they wanted a lawyer to teach it. So uh, I happened to know somebody in the department just socially, and he said, "Hey," and I said, "Sure." So I taught the class. First semester, I had 50 kids. Second semester, I had 70 kids. Third semester, I had 90 kids. Oh, wow. And it, it's once a week for three hours, mm-hmm. and I would probably over-prepare for it. And they were paying me. I'm not going to tell you, your listeners, what they paid me, but, but it was not lucrative, although incredibly enjoyable. And I asked for a TA once I had 90 kids, and they said, no, you can't have a TA. Oh. And I said, hey, would you double what I'm getting? And they said no. And so that, I just kind of said, okay, that, thank you very much. Appreciate the experience. Yeah. So, um, but it was, it was, it was, that was probably one of the highlights of my professional career was, was being able to teach for three semesters. Because it's, it's, it's great to interact with younger people. Um, 
and it, the the link, if you will, was uh, I told those kids a lot of them wouldn't prepare and they wouldn't read and probably in some ways reminded me of what I wasn't doing in undergrad. And I said, listen, having been in the military one time when nobody really in the class had done anything, mm-hmm. I said, I think everybody should have to do two years in the military. Well, some countries believe the same thing. So. I think Israel, I South believe- Korea. Yes. Maybe South Africa, although I don't know if they have conscription anymore. But I, I think I think I've always said I think that would be one of one of the great ways to rebuild the the, the country, this country. And I'm and I'm not that that's just my personal belief. Is that you know it, it teaches you that your opinion really is not any more important than anybody else's, exactly. and what you think is unique to you, but it doesn't matter in, in, in a bigger mission. Mm-hmm. And it really, you learn to subjugate yourself and you learn to follow uh, orders. Uh, even if, you know, you're not enamored with the people giving them, uh, you learn teamwork. It's something bigger, self-discipline. I think it's really, really important. Um, I agree. I and I, I didn't think I was going to ask this question now. Um, do you think we have too much freedom here in America? Meaning, like, example, mm-hmm. um, South Korea, you have to do your two years of military service. Right. Here, it's a choice. What? How many years ago there was a draft, you had to right. do military service. Right. So knowing that you would have to do military service just to understand citizenship and right. duty and to your country and to other people. Um, I think it'd be, I think it's incredibly important in terms of, is there too much freedom? I don't know if I'd say there's too much freedom. It's a great question. I, I think I, I look at it as um, there's too much self-investment that there's not a sense of the greater good. Um, I, I, regard Americans as different than Europeans. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, you know, I, I lived in Europe. My dad was on sabbatical. Um, I, I went there after my sophomore year of college. For I got sent on, a, on a, some kind of a, a post-sophomore year of college deal. I was stationed there in Germany for two years. Europeans, to me, have a bigger sense of community. Mm-hmm. Americans strike me as being uh, people who really fend for themselves first and foremost, and it's a me, 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 me mm-hmm. society. Um, I also see people in my professional legal practice um, doing a horrible job of taking responsibility for themselves and for their actions. So too much freedom, maybe not enough responsibility would be the counter that, that, that I'd suggest that, that we're really missing. And um, the way, in my opinion, to impart responsibility and to show people that all, although what you think and believe certainly is important, there are other things that are more important, and, and we have to focus on what's good for everyone, not just what's good for you, because then it becomes what's, what's good for you, Lexi, is different than from you, Greg, and you, from you, John, Jane, and all down the road. Mm-hmm. You, you're never going to have a society where we can cater to everybody's um, individual wants and needs. And I guess we could go down a whole other road about how corporations have taken over. Yeah, but but uh, yeah, it's a great question. Hopefully, and, hopefully I'm not turning your uh, listeners off. No, of course not. No, because I think it is a conversation that we should have. Mm-hmm. And just thinking even about like the Constitution, how we have freedom of speech and how, as we saw a couple weeks ago um, with the riots, right. and, you know, Charlottesville, 
freedom of speech then turns to, you know, people getting killed. Right. Versus if you're in, let's say, the UAE, where you cannot just say whatever you please because they will arrest you. Right. So I guess that's what I mean. Like, do we have too much? Should we be censored in, in a way? I, I don't think we should be censored. I think that people's skin is much too thin. Mm. So am I a white supremacist? Of course not. Why do we pay so much attention? My philosophy is you're going to get those people that believe that. You're going to get another group that believes something else and another group that believes something else. Why are we paying so much attention to it? Hmm. I don't think censoring speech is the answer. I think not paying attention to it, in my belief, is a better thing to do. I don't understand, uh, you know, whatever that perspective, and, and I'm not using that as an example. I, I don't have great examples to, to, to look to, but boy, anyone that does anything, it seems, this day and age, it's immediately thrown up on the internet or TMZ or, or you know, I'm getting something on my phone about some sports guy who was arrested. Everybody seems to be infatuated with everything at all times, and, and I think they've lost sight of really what's important. Mm. Those things aren't important. Uh, certainly what they're doing is, is not right, but the First Amendment guarantees us that kind of speech. So, so I, I, it, it makes me scratch my head a little bit when people say we should ban speech. Well, you got, I think you gotta be careful, because if we're gonna ban a speech that maybe you and I don't like, then what about what, is someone going to want to ban something that you and I say because they don't like it? I, I, I don't see that there's really an end to that. And, and again, maybe I'm going back to that sense of greater good, but I don't know why we're so enamored with that. I don't know why, um, you know, it's so easy in this day and age to pass judgment on what everybody else does immediately. Mm -hmm. But, you know, um, nobody's perfect. I would have to agree. <laughs> I'm not, so... And then you look at, you know, our president and he says whatever he pleases. Seems to get on Twitter all the time and, and really bash people. Yeah. yeah, and it seems as if he's opening the door for other people with, you know, not so friendly views to say and do as they please. Right. What do you feel, um, or how do you feel about his leadership in regards to things like, and again, if, sure. if I'm asking, you know, you're fine. No, you're fine. Um, you know, things like the military ban, the military banning transgender military men and women, and how, in my opinion, you shouldn't discriminate, period. And his. His argument was that these people, they are causing a lot of issues for the military. But then when you look at like the issues on, look at, at the issues he's saying um, these people are causing versus the issues that are really being caused, it, it's really not true. So in your opinion, and also knowing he can say whatever he wants. Sure. And he's protected because he's the president and he can make all, all of these directives and um, executive orders, and he can. In your opinion, 
how do we combat that and work with people who may be those being discriminated against and say, hey, president, um, you are who you are. You're able to do what you want to do. As a legal professional, um, what advice can you give to us and I know this is like a long winded. No, you're fine. Sorry. You're fine. I love it. Yeah. But you, because you also <clears throat> said, you know, we are worried and we, and I agree, we sometimes look at the wrong things and we are worried about the wrong things, you know, um, people saying different things. Instead of focusing on those words, we need to focus on action. Um, so in your opinion, what should we be doing? Right. I mean, I, he's a commander in chief. Uh, certainly, I, I think we, we have to respect the office. Um, I, I don't have a ton of leadership experience. I've served on boards. Um, I'm in court, as you know, on a regular basis advocating for clients, and I always try to be uh, reasonable in my dealings with judges and attorneys, and I serve as guardian ad litem, and and maybe that'll come up uh, later. But I think in his role as that kind of a leader, I think it's important that the discourse isn't so nasty. I think I don't follow the, our our president on Twitter. I, my personal belief, which probably doesn't matter, but my personal belief is it's not appropriate for the president of the United States to be tweeting. Mm-hmm. I, I just I think that's beneath the office. Um, I don't know that anyone will be able to change this particular president. Um, but I think the discourse has to be... In other words, you talk about, for example, Charlottesville. I don't believe that the vast majority of the country, I would think the huge vast majority of the country regards that as highly inappropriate. And I don't know if I'm answering your question, but but why don't we have the ability to be able to see that as a large, vast majority of the country regards that as inappropriate? And there's always going to be that small minority of of that kind of thing going on. Mm -hmm. Let it go. It would be, I've got um, a fraternity brother who's a congressman, um, U.S. congressman, it's tough. People don't seem to, and, and, and perhaps it's a generational, I, I, don't, I haven't studied sociology enough to give you an informed opinion. It seems to me in generations gone by there was more respect for one another. It may, now, that, that may be a romanticized version of what I believe or what I've seen, but uh, you, know, you, look at, you look at basketball games back at you know, Mackey Arena, we're here in, at Purdue, and I look at when Mackey opened in 1967, Purdue played UCLA, Lou Alcindor, mm-hmm. everybody, in that, everybody in that arena had a tie-on. Hmm. The men, the women wore, wore dresses. I'm not saying that you have to, but you know, my dad tells stories of when people would fly on planes, everybody would dress up. Mm-hmm. Now you go to planes and people have, you know, their 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 you know their tattoos hanging out, and you know, not 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 all, but but you see things that just you know aren't appropriate for you know maybe if you want to hang out that way at home. Mm-hmm. There just doesn't seem to be at any level of society, and this is a ma- this is a broad generalization. Just doesn't seem to be that respect. Mm-hmm. Don't know why that is. Um, I heard an interesting line a couple weeks ago, and I don't remember uh, exactly where I heard it. But and I'm just parroting. But uh, respect. You don't have to. It, people say well, you have to earn my respect. Well, respect should be given. 
Mm -hmm. I, I don't know that I, I'm dancing all over the place, but I don't know that, that we respect one another uh, nearly enough anymore. And I think that we really see, for, for whatever reason, our differences and we want to be different and we want to stand out and we want to do all these things um, rather than seeing what we have in common. Mm. Like that's unfortunate. Yes, um, I agree. And I think as the leader of our country, um, the president should be advocating for, you know, bringing people together and not dividing Absolutely. us even further. Absolutely. I mean, I, I look at the, I don't follow DACA closely, mm -hmm. but from, from what I can glean, it's an executive order that President Obama and President Trump's written a ton of executive orders. It's, it's an executive order. I don't know that it's, that, it, that it's legislation. It may be proper for him to say at some point, hey, I would like to set this executive order aside. It seems to me to be just a fundamental communication issue, right? Mm -hmm. so, so if you and I, Lex, are in charge of delivering that message, and we really feel that isn't it our responsibility first, kind of behind closed doors, to build a consensus with some of the members of Congress on both sides of the aisle to say, hey, listen, th this is something that, that I'd like to see happen, but before we go making a public pronouncement, can we begin to draft some legislation that, that, that would deal with these kinds of issues? Try, try to build a consensus first. In, instead of these essentially edicts that you, that you tend to see coming, and, and then I think that while there may be some credence to, to what's being done, there's a lot of the, 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 there may not be a lot of credence on the other side. And just that what I see is a lack of communication yes. is a real barrier to being able to build consensus, as you say, it's dividing people instead of bringing them together. Nobody's ever going to agree on, on issues. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. People just seem to be, in this day and age, extremely emotional mm -hmm. about a lot of issues, and it may have to do with the pace of life. I know I'm staring at your phone, I'm sitting here looking, at, and I've got plenty of time, I'm looking at my watch, because my son's... Um, you know, he's got cross country and I got to pick him up in, in 35 or 40 minutes. But but technology, right, we're we're all moving so fast and our clients want everything and everybody wants everything so fast. Mm -hmm. I, I just wonder sometimes are we moving too fast? I'm probably so far afield of your answer, but I, I think slowing down in America would be a great thing. You know, that's funny that you say that. I've lived in different countries and when I come back here to America, mm -hmm. I realize being away is so much more peaceful because everyone, except for America, they know how to slow down right. and enjoy life and be at peace with everyone, even if they aren't living in, you know, uh, five-story home, right. ten bedrooms. I've got a buddy from South Africa, and mm -hmm. when he goes back, he says the stores are closed on Sunday. I think it's great. I saw a picture in the Journal and Curry today. Smitty's Food Liner was a restaurant. It was a, a grocery store here in Lafayette. Mm -hmm. I think the picture was from 1963. Wow! And it showed the hours. And yeah. the hours are Monday to Friday, or Monday to Saturday, nine to eight, or nine to nine. Sunday, nine to one. Why do we have to be open? I agree with you all the time. All the Why time. is everybody on all the time? There's a great commercial I saw. A, a lady's a, a secretary, administrative assistant, whatever the term is, and she's asleep, and her mm -hmm. boss comes and sits on her bed mm -hmm. drinking coffee saying, I want you to return that email before I wake <laughs> up. And that's, that is really, people want it now. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's real problematic. So I'm glad you, you feel that way too. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, what I would like now is peace and justice for everyone, but I think our leaders aren't helping with that. Oh, but of course, agree more. we have people like you, attorneys and legal aid. And you. And, and me, I guess, who are out here um, wanting to help people. Um, so if... Oh, you were no, right. I, I'm, I absolutely agree. I mean, I go ahead, please. So I guess to the listeners out there who feel like, who may be in a bind or maybe even facing the, the ban because they are a transgender person um, and they feel they can't seek any legal help or they don't know where to seek legal sure. help, what do you say to those people? Well, no, nobody's going to discriminate based upon the fact that you're transgender. I mean, that, that's silly. Mm-hmm. That's, I, I don't think that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I had a client... Years and years ago, uh, who said to me, and, and he started a little bit, and he said, I have to tell you something. So he said, I'm good, 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 gay. And I said, well, okay. And he said, would you represent me? And I laughed, and I said, can you write a check? Well, of, <laughs> right, of course. I mean, I, I, I don't, it, does it matter? Yeah. I, I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't think so. So, so if you're asking me, do those people, yeah, if, if, if those people have a legal issue that they need help with, well, sure, you can call an attorney. Absolutely, we'll help you. Because, mm-hmm. yeah. and I guess, too, where my question stems, I look in the, you know, I hear it all the time. Um, people say, say, oh, man, I have this charge against me. I don't know how I'm going to beat it. I really need an attorney, but I don't have the money. Sure. So those people, like, I can always, you know, tell them, oh, I'll look over this and um, see what you could um, argue, mm-hmm. but I'm not an attorney. Right. So I can't help those but people. But you have passed the bar. I have. Good job. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, like, what, and I'm guess, I guess I'm asking here in Indiana, in Lafayette, there's legal aid, correct? Right, and yeah. And legal aid is for indigent Indigent people with civil cases, primarily family law, guardianships, uh, child need of services, yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there is help out there. There is, and, I, you know, I, I love it when you say beat a case. I, there's an expression you hear sometimes do, doing criminal defense work, which I do. People say, I caught a case. Mm-hmm. And over the years, I've gotten increasingly tired of that. And I've said, what do you mean? You put a baseball mitt on, you put your hand up. <laughs> So, you know, that, that goes back to that sense of responsibility. I mean, yeah. Look, if you have a, meritor- a meritorious defense, hey, and you want to go to trial, go to trial. Absolutely. Um, you know, jury trials can be fun. They, they, they can be scary, but they're fun. I mean, it's a, yeah. it's a neat experience. But, um, you know, again, I don't know. It's, it's the, yeah, there, there's civil help. There, there are public defenders. And, and, I mean, I know there was that 60 Minutes piece a few months ago about, the, you know, how PD's offices are overworked. There's no right. doubt about it. Um, on the flip side of that, Lexi, sometimes some of these folks that come in asking for PDs and they don't have this and they don't have that, they, they really do. So, you know, if you're going to be sworn under oath mm-hmm. and you're asking for a public defender and you tell the judge you don't have anything when you really do, mm-hmm. it's a double-edged sword. And again, I think that goes back to that, that accepting one's uh, a sense of personal responsibility. Um, and I, and I think that, uh, 
you know, back in back in the, uh, the the black and white movie days, where you put your hand on the Bible and you raise your right hand, I don't see the Bible anymore. Right. And now I don't see people telling the truth a lot of times. That's oh, even when they take that out. It, it. I mean, your clients come in to meet with the in the office, and you know. I mean, I think by and large they're telling you the truth, mm-hmm. presumably, or at least they're telling you what they perceive to be the truth. But you're also, I mean, I've got I mean, a case right now that I'm not going to talk about, but I know that my client's lying to me, oh. unequivocally lying to me. And he keeps saying it's, it's a criminal case. Do you, you know, what do you think? What do you think? And I keep saying to him without going into it, you, you know, you know the answer. And, and, if, and if you're going to be honest with me, then we need to plead it. But if you're going to maintain that this is what happened, then we need to get the blood. We need to get it to a toxicologist and so on and so forth. And, yeah. um, it, you know, just... That idea of maybe it's a romantic or, or a, you know, just an idealized vision of the world. But, you know, a little honesty will take you a long way. Yeah. Well, be honest with me right now, okay? Yes. This is kind of fun. So okay. So it's not going to hurt. This, seg- this part of the show, we, I just renamed it. So it's called, let me see. I had to write it. Who in the world? What in the world? And where in the world. Okay. All right. So, as you know, I'm a traveler, and I travel all over um, interviewing, chatting, connecting with artists. Yeah. And so that's why we have to go somewhere. So. Okay. Who are your major influences? I'm sorry, influencers. Uh, Maybe they are, or this person is someone who influenced your passion, um, your legal passion, mm-hmm. um, or maybe just someone who inspired you in sure. life. Sure, sure. All right. Also. And we get, we get to go slow and you'll go through <laughs> each one at a time. Okay, yes. good. So then um, what in the world is, what is um, your hidden talent or gift that you can share with those people, those influencers? Okay. And number three, where in the world are we going to share that special talent or gift with your influencers? Okay, I like it. So, yeah. so, you, all right, so, so what's our first one here? All right, so first one is who in the world? So who has been an influence on me? Yeah. Uh, high school teacher, Mr. Krause. Joe, right. if you ever listen to this, you're the man. He's Mr. still, he's still hanging around. Um, that guy was great. He was a history teacher. Had my feet up on the desk in front of me. I was probably a sophomore or junior in high school. Hey, Theobald. I said, yes, Mr. Krauss. How many tests did your parents pay for? One. Well, get your feet off that desk. <laughs> he was a great guy. He was not a curmudgeon, a tough guy, but, but he was great. Mm-hmm. Um, just always, always think about Mr. Krauss in college. Um, I would probably say George Davis, who is my tennis coach and also my history professor and academic advisor. Um, George was great. Um, in the army, my buddies. My, my I would think about Mark Walsh, uh, Lucian, who's who's now deceased. Um, Tommy Jones, uh, Mike Rashine. Uh, there's just a number of guys who who really I think um, Jason Morneau, um, who who just I, I really I mean that was kind of what got me through the, the military experience and, and had a good experience there. When I got to law school, um, I would say my girlfriend uh, in, in law school, she, was, she still is the best. Um, she's, she's the best. Um, Ron Bretz, 
yeah. was was a great professor in criminal procedure. Um, Shout out again to Thomas and Cooley Law School. Yes, great experience, yeah. Un- undervalued law school experience. Um, and then when I got into private practice, um, is there anybody that stands out as a mentor? In my work as a public defender, I really like Bill Lindblom here in the PD's oh, office. Yeah, he's awesome. Is he? Yes. I mean, yeah. Bill is Bill is as real as they come. And when you need something, or when you got a client who you're, you're having difficulty communicating with, uh, every once in a while, it's nice to have Bill um, kind of have a meet the Lord conversation okay. um, with Good with clients. Um, you know, I practice with a lot of different attorneys. Um, I've gotten good insight, and, 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 and I don't know, I'm probably droning on. But nobody really in the practice of law I would regard as a, um, a mentor. Uh, I've seen the good. I've seen the bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ugly. And the ugly. And, you know, uh, I think you, you learn how not to do it, and you also learn how to do it from the folks who do it right. So Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, where in the world are we going? Where in the world are Anywhere. we going? You can, someone uh, did we miss one? Did we, I thought we, we did. did. We did world? who, and then we're oh, going to do what, yeah, right? Yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you're good. Uh, t- two hidden talents. All right. Uh, I can memorize phone numbers. What? So how many phone numbers do you have memorized? Uh, many, that? many. I don't know. I <laughs> the mean, phone book? <laughs> no, but in any law firm or any lawyer, I know it. The court numbers, I know all the court numbers. I know, you know, sons, wives, uh, buddy. I mean, I know, I know, yeah, I just know phone numbers. I don't know why it's an idiot savant talent. Yeah. Memorizing song lyrics also. I wish. I'm a singer, and I get in so much trouble because I cannot remember lyrics. Really? So serious. Wow, that that is a talent. And, and and particularly in the in the old school days of rap. Uh uh-uh. uh. Uh huh. Are you about to rap for it? No 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 no. I want to know. But uh, you know, Treacherous Three. Yeah. Uh, I'm Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five. I remember my dad taking me up to a record store on the South Side of Chicago when I was probably in eighth grade to pick up some Grandmaster Flash and. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Of course, That's Sugar Hill cool. Gang. But uh, and the other the other talent that I don't know how I got this, but, but, you know, and, and so maybe I got to ask yours too, but, uh, I've always had a pretty innate ability to, to judge people and size people up almost in an instant. And I don't know where that came from, but I can pretty quickly size people up. I can tell what their agenda is or isn't. And, uh, um, yeah, that, that's really served me well. Okay. So. I, that should help with the legal profession. I think, I mean, you know, your client is lying to you, so it also helps, you know, the other lawyers. I think lawyers Ooh, do a lot of posturing. Good. Yeah. A lot of posturing. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I take it you are a good attorney. Do you, do you say so yourself? I, I don't. You I mean, I, I think you work hard, and, and that's all you can do. You work hard and try to make a difference, but uh, I'll, I'll let those other folks tell I'll me. I'll say it on the record. I experience you how many times? In a month. Thank you. And I think you you are one of my favorite attorneys. So. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and I guess just one more. because. And know where are we go. going? Yes. Where are we going? We're going to Bridgeton, Maine. All right. Why there? Because uh, so my parents had a house in Bridgeton. And okay. so every, every summer of my life, we went to Bridgeton. And uh, it's in the Lakes region of Maine, Highland Lake. Okay. It's just, it's the best. If, if you've ever been there, you'd I've understand. I've never been to Maine. You've never been to Maine? Mm-mm. 
Mainers are great. My favorite bumper sticker, uh, welcome to Maine, now go home. That's, that tells you about Mainers. <laughs> They they like their space and they don't want anyone to come into their That's space. That's right. Yeah. They call math people from Massachusetts mass ass mass holes. Mass holes. That's cute. <laughs> <laughs> I love That's it. Funny. I gotta. You keep interviewing as long as you as long as you got time. I'll keep talking. Yeah. yeah. Um. Well, I mean, you've said a lot, but as I, I think, as an attorney, you have to know how to talk to people. And how to get along with confrontational people. Absolutely. So, That's hard. Um, in the world we're living in today, with our leader being who he is, what is advice... At least for a couple more years, right? Yeah, Maybe. Right. <laughs> uh, what advice can you give us um, on how to talk to people, how to deal with confrontational people, and I Boy, guess all at the same time... Being the best law-abiding citizen we can be. That's hard. I mean, gosh, you do a confrontation all the time, right? Mm -hmm. in, in my professional practice, how do you, dealing with confrontational lawyers is difficult. There's a couple that are popping into my mind right now. It's, it's really difficult. It's not fun. Don't like it. Uh, don't like their agendas. Don't like the way they talk to me. Don't like the way they talk to my clients in settlement conferences. Um, dealing with, I've had a rash recently of, of family law clients who are extremely difficult. Um, I don't really ever get let go, and I probably shouldn't even be talking about this, but, I, but I've been let go recently by clients. Not a pleasant experience, but I've picked up a couple clients who have left other attorneys, and uh, I don't know if there's any magic formula to dealing with difficult people other than just try to, just try to do the best you can, and uh, it's hard. Mm -hmm. It is hard. I, I, don't, I don't understand why... Um, you know, law is a different animal because it, it's kind of adversarial and confrontational by nature, but I don't think you have to be. I mean, I can remember my very the very first time I ever saw a case when I started practicing, I was doing insurance defense, and I was up in LaPorte County in, um, in LaPorte in, in their courthouse, and there was a guy who looked like he was in his early 70s doing a small claims case, mm -hmm. right? Dressed well, dressed sharply, your honor, counsel. I mean, just the way he conducted himself is, it was, it was a model, um, I'm 47, sat in this conference room and had depositions with five or six other attorneys on a personal injury case a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Pretty good group, but I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to deal with confrontational people. It's, uh, I, I'm not the kind of guy who enjoys confrontation, and people probably say, why are you an attorney? Why, mm -hmm. you know, why not? I mean, I don't think you have to be confrontational. I think you've got to be smart. You have to have an ability to think on your feet, and I think you have to have an innate sense of. I think you have to be able to. to I'm not answering your question, Lex. No, you are. But I think the, the the best way for you to do your job as an attorney is to be able to size up. You, you know, in Cooley, they taught us the the Iraq method. Apply the the mm -hmm. you know you got the law. What what are the facts? And apply the law of the facts to come up with the conclusion. And I think to me, <clears throat> that's the most important thing you can do. I, I can size up cases really really quickly when I meet with people. You know, people want to talk and tell you this and tell you that, but if you know, you got to be able to figure it out, and you you have to understand what the judge is going to do. And I think increasingly, clients don't want to hear that. Mm -hmm. they, 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 I think a lot of clients believe that they're paying me my hourly rate or my retainer or whatever it is that that that, that you know. And they heard this about me and that about me that I'm going to get them, you know, the leprechaun and the pot of gold. Well, it's not necessarily going to happen. Right. 
And when you have to explain to those people, this is the law and these are the rules, people don't like it. And I think um, when I first started practicing, we'd go to smaller counties in terms of confrontation. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm thinking about, I don't know if your listeners will mean anything to anybody, but Carroll County, um, oh, Montgomery County, um, Fountain County, Judge Grog, Warren County, Judge Hall. I think about Judge Carey was in Delphi. And what you do is, is, as a young attorney, I'd walk back into the chambers, the judge's chambers, and he'd sit there with the attorneys and say, okay, guys, what do we have? Or gals, what, 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 do, you, what do we got? And so, Lex, if you and I are on the other side of a case, the judge is sitting there, I'll say, okay, Lexi, what do, what do you got? And you'd kind of tell him, and he'd say, okay, Theo, what do you, what do you got? And I'd tell him. He'd say, okay, well, here's what I think I'm going to do. Now, just based upon what we're telling them, and that gave us the ability then to go out and, number one, understand where the judge is coming from because we're not on the record. It's not being recorded, but, but he's given us good guidance, and we can go out and tell our clients, hey, listen, you could spend five or six hours fighting about this, but this is probably where we're going to be. And that then, I think, allows people, you can come together and figure it out. Yes. I don't, judges don't do that anymore. I don't know if they're taught in judge school not to do that. I, I don't know if they just if they don't want to do that because they don't trust lawyers. I really don't know. But I think that makes it even more difficult because um, you know we don't have that ability anymore. And uh, and I think I think older lawyers were more collegial with one another. I think that uh, I hear stories of uh, bar. You know, and, and I'm sure they're driven by beer and alcohol. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it was a different time, right? But mm-hmm. but. There was a spree de corps, and they did things together, and they liked one another. I don't think lawyers like one another now. I don't think we, we don't do things socially. Mm-hmm. When I I've been practicing, and I and I counted this up this morning, I think I'm on my 18th year of practice. Wow. Um, I went to a bar association Cubs trip the first year, maybe the second year. We don't do those things anymore. Um, there used to be bar association softball teams. They don't do it. Basketball teams. They don't do it. You know, maybe it's different in bigger cities. Maybe it's different in in, in places. But but around here. People just retreat to kind of what we started off with. I mean, they retreat to their homes. They retreat to their families. They retreat to, you know, and, and, and I mean, I volunteered to coach 8 million of my son's sports, not because mm-hmm. I'm some, but, you know, other parents will step up and do it and you do it. But we, we kind of go away and we go our own separate ways. And yeah. I think that makes it harder. Uh, I mean, I'm sure docs are the same way, you know, when, DUI laws, a good thing. We don't want people getting hurt drunk driving. Right. But, um, I mean, I'm reading a book right now about football. I love college football. is my, my passion. I love my boilers, and I love college football. And, uh, you know, he's, this guy's talking about in this book um, how youth sports have just taken over. And, mm-hmm. and um, you know, we've got all these travel sports going on, and I've lived it with my son. And God bless him. He's the greatest thing of all time, right? Mm-hmm. Love that dude more than anything in the whole world. But but he he's he's going to be if he gets any scholarship, it's going to be academic. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be athletic. I mean, he he got. I mean, I got cut from the eighth grade basketball team. He got cut from the seventh grade basketball team. He was devastated, so on and so forth. But we spent all those years, five years, six years in travel basketball. We spent five or six years in travel soccer, driving two two and a half hours each way to games on the weekend and and practicing three days a week and coaches yelling and this and that and the other and and i would say to all these people in these meetings hey fellas what are we doing Mm -hmm. you know and i remember in one in one early baseball board meeting maybe i'll wrap it up for you for, for you and your your listeners but my son was first grade and so they would hit on a t- they put it they put the ball in a pitching machine. Mm-hmm. If you can't hit it, then you put it on a tee. Right. 
and they hit and they go. And they said, well, well, this league's not competitive enough. So what we're going to do is we're going to take away the team. If they strike out, they strike out. And I said, now, wait a minute. There's about 10 of us in this room. So we'll have a draft. Hmm. And I said, uh, every kid, if, 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 if Lexi's coaching a team, her whole team bats through. If, you know, if I can't get three outs on your team, but when your last person bats, you're done. And you take the field and my team comes in. Mm-hmm. Why aren't we giving these kids that opportunity? And it was funny because somebody said, well, Theobald, you're not competitive enough. And I kind of laughed to myself and I looked around. Now, I only played Division three tennis, okay? So I'm not some Div one athlete. But I looked around. There was only one person in that room that played college sports. And I just thought to myself, you know what? Yeah. So. Well, yeah. So I've, what I heard you say, we all need to come together and be connected and share in each other's experiences and help each other when we see that there is something that we can do. Yeah, just relax. And relax. Just, just relax. Yeah, I mean, I'm sorry I'm getting more fired up and so no, less no, fired no. up the more this interview goes, but, but I contend that with families falling apart in America, mm-hmm. if we, and, and I do a lot of divorce work, if we can't get along in our own families and we're going to fight all the time. I mean, I had a phone call today. We're going to fight over the kitchen table. Uh-huh. And, and if we're going to fight that much in our own families, mm-hmm. how are we going to get along in anything else? That's true. That's true. That's good. Make sure you take care of home because it's going to trickle out into the community. Yeah, if you're, if you're happier at home, I think, or, or you can make things easier on, your, on yourselves and your family, I think it promotes a greater sense of well-being. I right? agree. I agree. Instead of instead of everybody looking for something to fill that void, yes. If you if you can get it at home, I mean the the people that that I regard as the most well grounded and and frankly, if I would call them uh, the most normal in terms of just the way that they conduct themselves, are usually the people that have. I mean, they're from pretty good family backgrounds, and I'm not I'm not talking about privilege. I mean, it could be poor, yeah. white, black, red, brown. It doesn't make any difference. It's just kind of. You know, if you get a good family home. grounding, yeah. yeah. And even if you're in a divorced family, just if you're if everybody can get along, usually works out better. Yeah. So, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Well, I hope none of my listeners, connectors, need to see you for any divorces. But can you let us all know? where we can find you, solicit your services? Absolutely. Uh, 410 Main Street, downtown Lafayette, uh, Indiana, across the street from First Source Bank. All right. Thank you for this opportunity, Lexi. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So, all right, connectors, you know what to do. Thank you, Mr. Theobald. And connectors, stay connected. Hi, connectors. A lot has happened since the last time we connected. And since the New York Bar Association finally said that I've obtained minimum competence to represent someone, I want to talk about legal issues, or at least help connect you with someone who can help you with your legal issues. Contact me, ampsconnected.com or info.ampsconnected at gmail.com. I travel. Let's connect.